0: Five years, four seasons, two miniseries. It all comes together in the epic finale of Moonbase Theta Out.
1: Hello again, Moonbase-ians. It's just too much to keep under control here! Our
0: position is on the moon. We are in possession of the moonbases. bases. And that is where we intend to remain, and despite you.
1: I was trying to fix things! Get your fists up, Michelle. We're gonna end this one way or another.
0: There is nowhere on the moon that you can hide. We will be visiting your position soon. This message is for Dr. Ashrini Ray and Roger Bergado fisher Your messages have been received and we recognize
1: your struggle. Let's move!
0: We could message everyone, everywhere.
1: What did I miss?
0: Sorry, love, it's a busy day at the end of the moon. We've been through the end of so many things, but we're
1: still here.
0: Moonbase Theta Out, the series finale, August 20th and September 3rd, 2023. Oh. It just takes a little time
1: There's no such thing as bad food.
0: Before we dig in, we'd like to take a minute to acknowledge that the studio where we're recording is situated within the traditional and unsurrendered territories of the Ganyangahaga First Nations. As settlers, it's important that we remember that the lands we occupy are not our own, and that we engage in conversations that challenge the colonial mindset. We want to encourage you to take some time today and every day to reflect on your relationship with the land you live on and with the indigenous communities of that area. So, Taffer, how you doing this week?
1: I'm doing Okay. I'm doing okay. I'm a little sleepy. I'm a little Mm -hmm. tired. Yeah. I've been doing a little bit of children things. (laughs) I've been busy. Yeah. But I'm doing okay. How about you?
0: Yeah, I'm doing all right. The weather has been a little nicer this week. It's gotten a little cooler.
1: Yeah, it's been, uh, it's starting to feel like fall is coming. Yeah, I'm excited for it. Of course, Mm.
0: for me, like, mid to late August is also when my seasonal allergies get the worst. Of course. So, like... The nice cool air and soft breezes have been coupled with like sneezing and itchy eyes and shit. But
1: it's nicer than what mid to late August usually is, which is Mm -hmm. a sweltering sauna plus seasonal allergies.
0: It's true. I'll take like fall temperatures with seasonal allergies over sweltering saunas. Yeah.
1: This week I actually got a hot coffee on purpose and took a hot bath on purpose. So you know the times they are a-changing.
0: Indeed they are. Speaking of the times a-changing, we are rapidly approaching the end of the year, which is a horrifying thought.
1: Oh, my God. Yeah.
0: And part of our show's kind of cycle throughout the year is that every year we do something called Munch Madness, which we do in the spring.
1: No, it's not already time, is it? No, no. Oh, my God. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it's time to start.
0: No, don't oh worry. My god! It's okay. not time to start planning for Munch you Madness. You scared yet. me. Give that a couple months. You scared me. Uh, no, no. I was just going to say uh, Munch Madness, of course, is our annual food tournament where we decide which food is the best food of the year. And uh, the winner of that tournament is the food that we will then spend a lot of extra time working on throughout the year. There we go. You getting where I'm going with this? I get where you're going with this. There we go. Don't panic. Pick up what you're putting down. (laughs) Don't panic. Uh, All of that is just a preamble to say that today we are talking more about bread, because bread, of course, is our food of the year for 2023. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of bread. Specifically, we're going to talk a little bit about 6,000 Years of Bread, Its Holy and Unholy History by H.E. Jacob a uh, book that I finished reading a little while ago and have uh, just absorbed a bunch of information from. And I thought it would be fun to kind of share a little bit of what I what I learned about the history of bread.
1: Now, to be very clear, you are going to talk a bunch about the history of bread because <laughs> in this particular dynamic, you are playing the smart girlfriend. Yeah. And I am playing Tom.
0: That's right. Yeah. yeah. Do your best impression of me in three, two... Uh. I never burp on Mike. Come on. <laughs> try harder.
1: <laughs> okay, so I'm... Um...
0: Now, I always delete those from the actual tracks of the, the, the customers I almost called them so the listeners don't have to hear them. Come on. What, what do I sound like when we're actually recording the show?
1: It's called what? <laughs> You're telling me it's called that? What? You're telling me. Wait, what about green clover?
0: Hey now, is green come clover on.
1: Is green clover related to red clover and white clover?
0: Listen, you can't just quote stupid things I said last week. Why can't not
1: I? If you're
0: supposed to. You're supposed to do an impression, not just. Uh, well, well I hurtful.
1: tried, and you told me both my impressions wouldn't be included.
0: I'm just saying you're being derivative. You know? <laughs> um, so, so let's talk a little bit about this. So, yeah, this book was written uh, in the like late 1940s. Uh, the author is a Jewish German guy. He spent time in a concentration camp and was. Uh, able to escape and, uh, you know, flee and whatnot, and then wrote this book not long after. Um, Yeah, and it's... So it's the history of bread up until that point, right? Right. Because, you know, obviously it is not a modern book. Right. (laughs) So it's it's missing the last, like, 60 years almost? Yeah. More than that, because there's it's technically not the year 2000 speaking right it's now. still in the modern era <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. but yeah it's it's really interesting he goes in a lot of depth about like the way that humans relationship to bread changes and also doesn't change interesting throughout like all of you know recorded human history yeah. what i'm kind of thinking is i want to paint a little like quick overview of like some kind of basic things about the history of bread. Yeah. Uh, but mostly I want to talk about the different kind of um, areas of life that bread touches us in okay. and how like certain groups kind of related to that and how that kind of like paints a picture throughout history, if that makes sense.
1: Absolutely. Before we dig into this, can you mm-hmm. tell me like how did you find this book? Because this uh, is like a tome. Yeah. And like what you didn't say in the introduction is that this has been a, a struggle.
0: Yes. So I started reading this book a little over a year ago yeah. because last year bread was also our food of the year and I was like oh I'll read a book about the history of bread and then like at some point I'll do an episode about it Uh, and then a year passed before I finally finished it so it kind of worked out that bread won a second year in a row because otherwise that would have all been for naught it's heavy it's a heavy book but yeah so I found this book honestly I was looking for books about the history of bread this one came up with a lot of good reviews and I was like "All right, let's do it let's get into it cool I, I impulse buy books
1: Oh I know this
0: For me it's rare that I take time to think about what book I'm going to buy
1: mm-hmm.
0: I just if I'm like that sounds good I grab it
1: Yeah this is new though Like yeah. your your book thing this is like a new thing <laughs> This is like within the last two years yeah. You went from being somebody who would growl at me when I suggested reading To being somebody who has like a two like two foot tall TBR pile on your dresser and And impulse buys books Yeah and that's growth. It that's our growth. growth. It is yeah.
0: growth. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it took me a while to dig through it because uh, most of the books that I read these days that are food history books are like written almost like a collection of blog posts right. or like written in ways where it's for general audiences. This is very much written like a, a history text yeah. written by a German guy in the late 40s. It's, it's, dense
1: (laughs) i think that's there's like actually a really interesting thing in the way books have changed since the era of blogging because like a lot of like in the past let's say 20 years Mm. uh 15 maybe a lot of the ways you get published is by blogging yeah and and that like i think really changed the tone of informative books Mm. and for like those of us who grew up in the blogging era It's very weird to read books from before that, like informative books from before that era.
0: Yeah, that's it. It's like, I almost want to say it's a lot more prosaic. Like there's, he really like goes into stories of things and like really paints broad pictures and like more than the little paragraph that you get at the beginning of recipes. Yeah, it's
1: like a Charles Dickens book about bread.
0: Almost, honestly. It's like like a, (laughs)
1: uh, it's like a Les Mis book about bread. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, yeah. There's a part where a baker jumps off a bridge and there's a little crunch. When do
1: they sell the bread? When do they steal the bread? <laughs> when
0: do they steal the bread? Um, but yeah anyway, so all this to say, if you are someone who likes to read like really heady books about history, this one's really good. If you are someone who prefers a slightly more casual read, I am saving you the trouble of reading this one. Uh, we'll talk about you know some of the highlights today instead because just digestion wise, sometimes uh, this much gluten can be a little bit heavy. <laughs>
1: You're gonna add a little levity yeah to the book. Yeah. Oh, huh?
0: So, quick overview, history-wise, uh, people have been eating bread for thousands of years. Um, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, look, there's not a lot that I'm going to say, like in terms of like history of bread itself that we haven't said already on this show. Uh, I'm really more interested in talking here about the sort of like, like I said before, the kind of like themes throughout it. For sure. Uh, but for a kind of quick like rundown, you know, basically as soon as people realized that they could. Pound grain into flour and mix it with water. They did so and baked it. There are, you know, archaeological records from like 6,000 years ago. Hence the name of this book uh, of people doing just that. And that, the thing that is consistent is the pounding of the grain into flour and yeah. the turning into a baked eating. Thing. Where it gets interesting for me is seeing the sort of religious connections to bread that mm-hmm. people have throughout history, the way that bread kind of affects things economically, yeah. uh, and the way that bread affects things in terms of military which oh, is not something I'd ever thought about.
1: I want to hear about that.
0: Yeah. So so I think I want to take each of those kind of one by one, right? Sure.
1: I'm all I'm very curious about the unholy history of bread personally.
0: Sure. And I yeah. mean hot take for me, that's where the military yeah, comes in, right? Absolutely. Uh, and I listed those three things in that order on purpose, right? Because the religious feels like it kind of comes first before the sort of economic and technological side of it. Mm -hmm. And then you get the economic and technological side of it kind of as the things get a little bit more secularized, right? And just more kind of um, productivity-based, I guess? Yeah, right? well,
1: is that like around Industrial Revolution or pre? Yeah, exactly, yeah, okay. right?
0: It's like as people start to figure out agriculture, right. things become more efficient and more intentional, right? And so it's a little less about the magic and a little more about like feeding people. Right. Uh, and then obviously when war comes into play, we, you know, we'll get into that, but I think that's kind of the furthest thing from like religion, you sure. know? Uh, I mean, ideally, <laughs> maybe not historically, but <laughs> but in terms of like uh, the the connection to like why it matters you yeah. know it's more about feeding the body than it is about feeding the soul right yeah
1: so tell me about bre- the the religion of bread
0: yeah so it's interesting cuz like going back to say the ancient near east and like ancient egypt and like all of the the places where we like barely have historical records because like they were writing in languages we don't totally understand and like lots of stuff got destroyed or eroded over time mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of you know all over the place people were already eating bread worshiping gods of the harvest worshiping gods who brought the bread to them in one form mm-hmm. or another
1: mm-hmm. now when we say the ancient near east yeah. we're talking about kind of like mesopotamia sumer yeah. like the so-called cradle of civilization yeah. kind of place yeah okay, yeah, cool. yeah exactly mm-hmm.
0: so yeah like as long as bread is has existed in historical record there have also been polytheistic communities and cultures that had some god who was connected to it in one way or another yeah. uh, and typically what that kind of ends up looking like is people worshipping that god in order to get bread uh, right. worshipping that god through the the making and consumption of bread and, and offerings of bread uh, and also you know seeing the bread as kind of a connection between themselves and that god So you see that in terms of like, I wish I could remember any of their names and you'll have Uh, to.
1: There's Isis, there's Ishtar, there's uh, uh, Demeter, there's... Jesus. Sure. (laughs) Also, right? Sure. Uh,
0: That's it. So it's like you get, you get to see this sort of like common thread thing where it's like, okay, people see bread as this essential nourishment for their bodies, right? And they explain it as being connected to something divine yeah. because they're like, okay, feeding ourselves is divine. Nourishing ourselves, giving ourselves the things we need in order to survive, that is something that is a gift from the heavens. Yeah. Or, or, or from, you know, <laughs> whatever version of the heavens we, we are talking about here, right? And it's interesting to see that kind of as something that's already in play before Christianity. Oh,
1: long, long, long before Christianity.
0: Well, that's it, right? Because we, I think it's really easy in our modern context to think like, okay, like religion and bread, like it doesn't take a genius to immediately jump to the Eucharist, right? To communion, to eating the literal body of Jesus in the form of bread. And so it's interesting to think about that as like, okay, people were actually eating bread and thinking of it as themselves eating like, you know, something that is connected to God or a god of some kind for, you know, millennia before Jesus came around.
1: One thing that just came to mind while uh, while you were talking about the connection between like Christianity and bread. Mm-hmm. So you're familiar with like Asherah from the Bible, the Asherah poles come up. Maybe you didn't read the Old Testament quite as much <laughs> as I did. You
0: wanna you wanna refresh me?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So, well, in the Bible, the reference to Asherah is as a Canaanite uh, goddess who's sort of set up as like God's rival, mm-hmm. and you know they're commanded to knock down the Asherah poles and you know desecrate their holy sites. Asherah was a Canaanite goddess of the harvest and the moon. There is like pretty strong evidence that she was worshipped as Yahweh's wife for a very long time. And then you see basically recorded in Kings, the recording of like the overthrowing of (laughs) Asherah. Right. um, Because there would be, as in all polytheistic societies, there are cults of the various deities and essentially the cult of the father god um, overthrew the cult of the mother god. Yeah, and that's how we get the the patriarchal figure of the the monotheistic god of Christianity.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah. And that's
1: that's I think I mean there's so much metaphor to be drawn. Yeah. <laughs> to no be kidding. Drawn out there of overthrowing the the worship of the harvest goddess mm-hmm, <laughs> in favor mm-hmm. of the the military like <laughs> patriarchal figure. Yeah. No um, kidding. But I learned about this recently, and I I love harvest goddesses. I do. A lot of research into them, sure, um, yeah. and uh, an Asher. I figure I can't remember her name, but like I was, I was studying pre-Christian mm-hmm. pagan religions of Armenia because I'm interested in researching my own pagan roots. Sure. And like one of these, like that's who was worshipped in that right. region prior to Christianity. Anyway, yeah, it's I right. think it's I think there's a lot to be kind of drawn out of exactly this transition that you highlighted at the beginning of right. this. From when did we go from worshiping food? To worshipping war. Right, yeah. Like, or worshipping conquest, <laughs> yeah. right?
0: Yeah, well, that's it, right? Uh, and, and it's interesting because, like, um, so I, I looked up Asherah because I, yeah. I couldn't remember Asherah specifically. But that's because uh, she's, like, referenced in multiple different kind of yeah languages and, and ancient Semitic religions. Yeah. Um, Is she
1: a version of Ishtar? Are they the same? Uh, I don't. I think they're the Canaanite and Babylonian version of the same goddess.
0: I, I uh-huh. don't think so. Okay. But I'm not as familiar with like uh, is Ishtar not uh, Egyptian?
1: No that's Isis.
0: Okay okay at any rate I'm remembering that like she was referenced as like part of like Akkadian and Hittite. Hittite. So, so
1: Hittite is the region that like, Armenia okay. was part of. Okay yeah, yeah. yeah. so there we go. Uh, there's also Inanna who's like Mesopotamia, yeah. Mesopotamian um, and she is also Ishtar.
0: Yeah that's it and so there, there is this sort of like connection between like these goddesses who are goddesses of provision and nourishment and protection and fertility, right? Yeah, we we see those as things that are so essential and so important. And then the military starts to happen more and more, and people start to want more land and more power. And, you know, not to spoil things, but that comes in part because of the need for stronger and more prevalent agriculture. Right. Because uh, what ends up happening, especially in that kind of <laughs> that region, it's, it's a broad swath we're painting here, right? Uh, but like in the like ancient Near East is that there are some places that are a lot closer to water and therefore a lot better for agriculture and places that are further, right? And where you need to find ways to kind of compensate for that, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's by building close to a river so that you have that source or by, you know, <laughs> going to war with the people who are closer to the water and taking that land and then creating trade routes so that you can supply yourselves with stuff. Right. And so, again, this thing of, like, starting out as worship, right? Starting out as, like, we're going to take from the land and give back to the land and, mm-hmm. and praise the gods for providing us this land in the first place turns into we have a lot of people to feed. Let's find ways to do this as efficiently and as, like, you know, with the greatest output possible. Right. And that turns into we have used this land as much as we can. How can we find more land? Let's go to war, right? right. And uh, I don't know if that's starting to sound a little bit like something else that's going to come up <laughs> a little bit later. <laughs> uh, and, you know, if we think for even half a second that needing more land to farm wheat isn't a large part of colonialism, we're fooling ourselves a little bit, oh, right? 100%. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, like, without getting too far ahead of myself that's the kind of like religious side of it right is yeah. the the we worship bread because bread is this thing that like to people who didn't understand the science of it back then it's fucking cool it's magic right Yeah. I mean hell for me Eating bread sometimes is magic right Ugh. like
1: <laughs> I mean for, for, for everyone like I feel yeah. like people talk about bread as a spiritual experience yeah so often yeah yeah that's
0: it and it's like the fact that we can like look most of us nowadays I think it's safe to say by the time we're adults at least understand that food is not necessarily magical in mm-hmm. its preparation right like we mm-hmm. understand you heat something up and it becomes something else right like it's not this crazy alchemy it's not this crazy like no one understands how this works kind of thing we do understand how it works
1: but it's still magical
0: but it's still magical and it's still really cool right and so it's this thing that goes from this beautiful exciting crazy thing to something that you need yeah Hey folks, we're going to take a minute here in the middle of the show to tell you about all the ways that you can support us, be they financial or with moral support uh, or, you know, both at the same time. Uh, So if you're enjoying the show so far, make sure to hit subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on so that you never miss a new episode. While you're at it, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you have Apple Podcasts, or sharing this episode with a friend if you don't. For every new rating and review we get during the month of August, we'll be donating $2 to The Depot, our local food bank here in our home neighborhood of NDG. They can turn every $1 into $3 worth of food for a family in need. So by doing the simple free act of leaving a rating and review of our show, which takes like... (laughs) Thank you. The <laughs> cat A minute longer if you want to leave a really thoughtful review but truly does not take long at all you are functionally donating six dollars worth of food to people who need it there's literally no other way to turn zero into six so if that math is exciting for you go do it you can read all about what the depot is doing at the link in the description of this episode
1: if you join our patreon you'll get access to our new monthly newsletter the no bad food recipe club where each month we'll post new recipes for you to try out and share with your friends and family if you aren't already a member of our patreon please consider are joining us at patreon.com slash no bad food pod today uh we're really having fun sharing these recipes this is an exciting um exciting project
0: yeah it's a cool way to get involved with the community around our show so if uh if you like good people talking about good food and being warm and thoughtful about it you know do it all right let's get back to the show I want to get into the sort of economic side of it and the like growth of agriculture through that. Like I alluded to before, it starts off relatively simple. People working the land in the ways that they can, right? Working the small amount of land that they have, growing the crop, figuring out how the crop works. It's interesting. There is a case to be made for agriculture being something that people have like understood since the dawn of time right
1: absolutely yeah
0: and and not just that but like what's the distinction between just farming and like really intentional farming of crops to like find the best and like grow it you know like uh horticulture oh there we go go. (laughs) (laughs) i was like i know there's like a distinction between like regular like just agriculture writ large and like the slightly slightly narrowed down thing of like doing it really intentionally to, like, optimize, right? Yeah. yeah. And, like, there's a case to be made that horticulture has existed as long as agriculture has, right? Oh, yeah. And uh, and that's, that's something that I see really clearly with bread and with wheat because wheat is complicated, yeah. right? The fact that you can have as many different kinds of bread as there are exist is testament to that. Mm-hmm. Because, like, now you probably know this a little bit more clearly than I do, but, like normal wheat bread whole wheat bread I believe rye bread
1: mm-hmm.
0: all made from the same kind of wheat no no what's the third one I'm thinking of uh,
1: all per, so like white bread and whole wheat bread are the same kind of wheat it's yeah. just that whole wheat has the uh, the husks there we go it, yeah and white does not uh, rye is a different kind of wheat it is a different one there yeah, we go yeah but it's so still a wheat it is there we it go is, yeah but it's a different kind Um, so is spelt right. uh, so is camet yeah um
0: Yeah, that's it. And so it's, like, the fact that this, like, one kind of plant can have so many variations in it, right, tells me that, like, people had to kind of breed for the ones that they needed, right? And so as you're starting to get into this issue of, like, okay, we have increasing populations because we have increasing space and we have increasing ability to keep people alive, all of a sudden we need to continue to have increasing ability to keep people alive because we, you know, can't sustain that otherwise, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: Back in those days, the, like, rulers would also pay people with bread, right? It was not as common to just pay people with money and let them figure their own stuff out. Part of your job as the, like, king or as the, like, priest of a place was to keep track of all of the bread that's being produced and make sure that everybody is getting some. Uh, And often that meant paying the people who worked for you more bread than others, which, you know, uh, it happens. Uh, But that didn't mean giving anybody no bread. right? Right. And it was a lot of responsibility placed on feeding everybody and making sure you can feed everybody at any cost. Right. Often this meant making trade agreements with other places and other kings and other rulers Often this meant, you know, if you can't make those agreements, forcing those agreements a little bit yeah, and, and taking people to war. And so you have this thing happening where people are going, okay, we need to feed the people. Rather than come up with new ways to feed the people, we have to get bread. Mm-hmm. Where do we get more bread? It's so essential that it's the one thing.
1: Well, this is know? like, I mean, not to bring it back to the Bible again, but you think about the story of Joseph. Right. Where it's literally going like he stashes wheat. Right. And then when there's a famine, everybody goes to Egypt because there's bread in Egypt because there's wheat. Right. And that's like how you end up with the Israelites in Egypt for a very long time. Right. Um, And I said back to the Bible, but, you know, back to that that we could as easily say Jewish history. It's (laughs) it's
0: important to remember that as much as the Bible is a religious text, there is. Is a lot of like valuable history in it yeah right it's not necessarily to be taken as a completely reliable historical text but it can certainly be taken as a like text that is important to history at the same time right so I want to jump forward like a few hundred years here like a few thousand years even uh, to something a little bit more modern right so obviously we've gone through religion we've we've touched on that Jesus shows up he's the literal bread of whatever body eat him yum yum we're in the middle ages mm-hmm. in the middle ages shit's weird does that feel accurate that is th- no that's like history 101 <laughs> <laughs> that's like all you need to know <laughs> yeah, yeah by this point uh you know we're starting to get history from like the british european history a little yeah. bit more than just kind of ancient Near East history we're starting to move north there is wheat up there of varying kinds there is white bread and whole wheat type of wheat and there's rye bread type of wheat and there's all kinds of things yeah Uh,
1: just uh, uh, a distinction I think that you will be interested in and probably already know from the book is that rye is an earlier type of wheat sure yeah an older type of wheat as long along with spelt and camet yeah. Um, and modern wheat had probably emerged by the Middle Ages. But yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Anyway, I um, think that's cool. Yeah, for sure.
0: sure. And so, um, you know, <laughs> just to touch quickly on this, because I think this is really interesting. Bread and its connection to Christ through the Eucharist is such an important thing in the Middle Ages in England that uh, there are people who, you know, only eat it. It is all they eat is the Eucharist. Do you know about this?
1: I don't know about this, and I want to rub this in the faces of all of the keto uh, bros.
0: I I need to... I don't remember off the top of my head, but there is a story of possibly a teenage girl. I don't remember. Probably. Probably a teenage girl uh, in the Middle Ages who like... Becomes convinced that she is married to Jesus.
1: Oh, there's like... You'll have to be more specific. Like... There's so many of
0: them. Like, where's apparently his foreskin as a ring?
1: Whoa. Yeah. Just, I've okay. got to be
0: able to find this somewhere. I uh, mean,
1: which saint wore Jesus' Jesus's foreskin? foreskin ring. <laughs> St. Catherine of Siena.
0: That sounds right, yeah.
1: This is, a title, this is an, uh, uh, an article called 101 Uses for the Sacred Foreskin.
0: Incredible. Um, <laughs> at any rate. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, I'm no, sorry, no but I need it. to read you the first paragraph of yeah. this. A study called The Circumcision of Jesus Christ pioneers a new flavor, interesting choice, of interdisciplinary research. Urology at last joins forces with theology. The study, published in the Journal of Urology, focuses on what happened to Jesus' foreskin during and especially after biblical times in the Journal of Urology. Sure. Sure. Thank you for bringing me on this journal journey. Um, Thank you for bringing me on this journey. Anyway, so St. Catherine of Siena.
0: Yeah, I'm not even sure if it's her or if it's someone else who's convinced that they're married to Jesus. I mean, there there were, listen,
1: there were so many teenage, like they were the influencers of the medieval era. Like teenage girls who were convinced they were married to Jesus, took devotion to him to, to great lengths, made a big deal about it. Like it was, it was like the thing to do. Right often combined with various forms of anorexia so sure. i'm very interested to hear about this well so that's
0: it right so so this kind of historical anorexia i guess for for lack of a better term yeah that's a, that's the holy prepus holy prepuce depending on how you feel like that should be pronounced christ's little bit i don't again i don't remember off the I'm top sorry, of my head this
1: is just this is just a, a painting of the circumcision of christ and look at his face
0: yeah, I mean, how would you feel?
1: He's he's not even mad. He's just like, what are you doing? <laughs>
0: um, so basically, whoever it was. Long story short, convinced they're married to Jesus. Convinced that they can like heal people. Whatever. Uh, maybe they can. TBD. Yeah. It's 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 cloudy. Only eats bread that is the Eucharist specifically. Not and, just not just only eats bread. Literally takes communion as the only meal in their life. Lives for a solid amount of time doing this, not yeah. healthily, certainly. But
1: taking the Eucharist every day, certainly, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That's it. And so, thinking about that, right? Yeah, think that's just a little like side side trip there. A couple hundred years later now, just just I wanted to stop there very quickly and, uh, and yes. you know talk about foreskin because why not? Uh, before moving on to. Uh, industrialization, right? Um,
1: the last stop before industrialization is foreskin.
0: The last stop before agrarian revolution is circumcision. Um, before you can The use, U.S. is
1: in trouble, man.
0: <laughs> before you can use tools to dig holes in the ground, you must use tools to cut off a the, the little bit of skin. So what do you do when one farmer cannot farm enough wheat to feed all the people anymore.
1: Get two farmers.
0: Sure. What do you do when those two farmers, by their own human strength alone, cannot do that anymore?
1: Get three farmers. Sure. What...
0: uh, (sighs) We can do this forever. You
1: said I was going to be you. (laughs) It's true, yeah.
0: What do you do when human power is no longer enough to do the thing? Horses. Exactly. But horses alone can't do the thing, right? Oxen. Sure.
1: Are you telling me a horse... Cannot sling a sack of seeds on his little hip and scatter them in a freshly plowed furrow with his little hoof. Are you trying to tell me that a horse can't do that? Because I'm here to tell you that a horse can do anything he sets his mind to. A
0: horse can do anything a man can do just as well, if not better. In
1: high heels backwards. (laughs) What I'm
0: saying is... Even when we bring horses into it, which certainly happened much, much earlier. You should
1: always bring horses into it. If you you can, bring a horse into it.
0: The horses don't serve as a tool as much as, as a vehicle at that point, right? The horses help you make quicker work of the thing, but you're still doing a lot of the manual labor of it beyond that. And it doesn't necessarily completely solve the problem, right?
1: A vehicle and a friend.
0: Sure. That's where... The tools come into play, right? Be they plows or, or harvesters or what have you, you can attach them to carts that wheel behind the horse. They do the thing automatically. Yeah. Then you just have to steer the horse and yeah. the machinery does the rest, right? And that makes it possible to harvest a hell of a lot more than you could harvest without it and yeah. also without the horse exponentially so, right? Yeah. And so... As things progress, as people start to have more different types of jobs, as people start to have higher populations, as we start to need more things as people than just bread, the farmer job becomes more difficult because not everybody is farmers anymore, right? right. When everybody is farming their own wheat, there's less demand yeah. for for that, for any individual farmer to do a lot of farming. Yeah. When there's, like, one farmer for every, like, 6,000 people, all of a sudden, there's a lot of fucking pressure on that farmer. Yeah. So you need more equipment. You need more tools. You need more machinery. What starts to happen is that there is more and more of that, right? Yeah. So this kind of thing, like, they were coming up with this kind of stuff in ancient times, too. Like, they they were coming up with sort of prehistoric, not prehistoric, <laughs> pre-industrial versions of this kind of thing exist, for sure. Yeah. But... Where it starts to really take hold is in the Industrial Revolution, right? Right,
1: when they decide to turn farming into factory. Yeah.
0: So I talked a little bit about how that kind of starts to bring us more toward, like, modern times and also toward, like, the relationship between bread and war, right? As we start to see greater industrialization in the, like, agriculture world, we see that the people connected to it start to thrive a little bit more, right? And that makes sense because they have access to more bread that they need to survive, right? Uh, and they have it at a lower like labor cost, I guess, yeah. than they would have otherwise, which means that they're more free to do other stuff like art.
1: A history fact that I love mm-hmm. um, that's probably pre-industrial revolution slightly, sure. maybe like 1700s, but just like there didn't used to be kitchens in normal right. people's homes like kitchens were for the wealthy right. because commoners would usually go out in the street and buy like a loaf of bread and some cheese from a stall and that would be what they ate sure. because then you had time to do other things because i mean in cities like, right yeah. like obviously but yeah i i remember that seeing that just in Talking about how cooking your own food became a thing, and of course that's tied in with women's labor and the nuclear family and everything. Right. Um, but I think it's very neat to think about that shift from kind of like we think a lot about the history of agrarian families and mm-hmm. like oh in the olden days everybody had their little garden plot and fed themselves, but it's not actually true. You had right. the farmers who would go into the city every day yeah. with their cart, or they would have their market day, would go in with their cart and sell their whatever, right. and then the city people would eat it on like a snack basis, right? And I I like knowing that. That's like plowman's lunch, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's I mean, it. plowman's lunch is for plowmen who presumably produced Plow. all that food, but whatever. Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. And so as we start to see, you know, more and more of that, it starts to become clear that like if we want to continue to produce the amount that we need for things, we need to outsource that a little bit more, right? And this is where things get more and more connected with. War, unfortunately, there's this little thing that you may or may not have heard of called the American Revolution. It's interesting to kind of look at the bread side of this, right? Because I think especially when we get to U.S. history onward, I think is where the the relationship between like food and military conquest becomes really interesting. And I think that part of that is that we get like we have more record, yeah. Uh, But I think also part of that is that because of the industrialization side of it we just like see it on a bigger scale right the scale of it is so much bigger now that it's across continents now that it's across oceans Uh you know but basically the French and the English had been at war with each other for you know since time immemorial really (laughs)
1: like history's greatest frenemies right there yeah
0: yeah when the French and the English go to war with each other the amount of bread that each place has factors into that right because you have to feed your armies you have to feed your people.
1: An army travels on its belly.
0: An army... Tra- uh, yeah, I think... Who is that? Napoleon. That's... Okay, yeah. Because Napoleon, part of his genius is that he kept his troops fed. And he made Until sure... he hit Russia. till he hit Russia, where he could no longer keep his troops fed. Thank you. This is actually exactly where I was going with this. Because...
1: It is Napoleon.
0: The wheat was not the wheat they were used to.
1: Oh.
0: Because the further east you go in Europe... It's cold hardy it becomes yeah. not the wheat yeah. that you're used to. It becomes like rye.
1: Fascinating. Okay. So
0: that's ultimately what ended up, you know, screwing them over is like a lack of understanding of, you know.
1: As they're robbing farmers' fields as yeah. they march, yeah. suddenly these farmers aren't aren't producing the food they're used to. Yeah. So they yeah. start
0: getting the, you know, indigestion and the shits, and they don't have the ability to create the food that they need for themselves nearly as much anymore. And so they're not as well-fed anymore. And they're not as hardy and they can't handle shit right when the French and the English are going to war with each other it creates a lot of debt right for especially for the English government they cannot possibly recover financially from it but through all of that they have been sending people over to air quotes the new world uh, to colonize the shit out of it Uh, and Oh, they discovered that there is also you know farmable land here. Surprise! Uh, and
1: especially the, if you cut down all the forests, yeah, screwing us over for centuries to come. Yeah,
0: and especially if you like wheat, because wheat can grow pretty damn well here. Um, <laughs> so they start farming a lot of wheat here too, and that starts to help with things. But the colonists are mad because they're like, "You're still charging us a lot of money to pay for your war, even though ostensibly we're you know." your best resource right now like what's up they they revolt
1: why are you taxing the hand that feeds you yeah Yeah. pretty much
0: uh they revolt and then we'll fast forward another couple hundred years to the civil war
1: oh uh, yes and this that when you talked about how food factors into war the first thing i thought of was the civil war
0: so yeah. Civil war between, you know, the Confederate states and the United States, the the slave-owning states and the states that are down with getting rid of slavery.
1: Yeah, the still slave-owning, but, uh, but trying to uh, not be. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. The major difference in terms of, like, what they had, they had similar numbers of people. They had similar numbers of, of territories and space and whatnot. But the sort of defining factor is... What they're using their industry for. Yeah. Now in the north, they have industrialized food yeah. a lot more. They because they're not focused on tobacco, they're not focused on slave labor. They've been focusing on industrialization and on child re- labor. Child labor. Well, yeah. yeah. But but also That's on the, the like. Main difference. <laughs> <laughs> come on. Uh. <laughs> but also on making sure that agriculture and everything are working really well. They're not putting all of their eggs into the baskets of tobacco and cotton yeah, in the same way that the South has been. yeah. And so ultimately, the South can't win the war because they don't have the bread. I- ideals aside, they screwed up on that front, and that ends up being their downfall.
1: So, like, don't uh, do monoculture, because it's a bad idea, and yeah. it always has been.
0: That's the thing. <laughs> if you're going to try to be racist, you better have good bread to back you up. Shit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Then you know we see this again and again and again throughout history. bread good bread gives you the the victory, yeah, essentially we see it in World War one, we see it in World War two every time there is a war, it is the people who are able to make the bread who are able to come out on top yeah and it's insane to me that this continues to be true over and over and over again that ultimately it is not the power of your military, but the bellies.
1: Well, and I think that's that's really interesting too when you think about um, the way food has been used as a weapon of war historically. Yeah. And I mean, that's going back to the ancient times that we started at. Of course, yeah. If you, you, know, if you force a city to, um, what do you call it, when they have to go in and shut all the doors? And when you lay siege to a city, you right. cut them off from their food supply. Right. That's the point of laying siege, yeah. is that eventually they run out of food. That's like... the the oldest one of the oldest military tactics yeah and it's really interesting to think about how it carries into once we no longer have cities you can really lay siege to the same way although i mean actually now i'm thinking about ukraine like obviously you can still lay siege to cities and cut off their supply lines
0: yeah but that's the thing right it it becomes it becomes a very different question right of like when wars were fought on foot the way that the bread was transported, it became a thing where you had to ensure that your own army would have enough bread at every outpost, right? Which meant you had to capture the bread, essentially, in order to stay ahead. As war became more technologically advanced, and bread became more technologically advanced, it changes things up a little, right? Because... American soldiers overseas no longer need overseas bread. Right. Necessarily, right? They can rely on bread back home via shipments yeah. and whatnot.
1: Yeah. Which, which is probably like World War I the first time that happens. Yeah. And
0: that's it. And that changes the relationship there, right? Where suddenly you're not concerned about, say, Russian bread. Yeah. Right? You're only concerned about American bread. And so if you're only concerned as American bread... How do you weaken the Russians? You right. get rid of their bread. Right. You don't seize their bread. You yeah. eliminate it. Right. Which feels so much more offensive. Oh yeah. Right.
1: <laughs> but I mean, I do, I do want to say that, like, again, destroying your enemy's crops mm-hmm. is a thing that has existed. Yeah. For thousands of years as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but like, there's a there's a difference. That's it. Um, yeah.
0: It becomes a more significant tactic, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like
1: as your reliance on it changes, yeah. right? Yeah. It means you can use it even if the field is ready to harvest. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's the thing that kind of stuck with me here is like all throughout history, every time that we see major conflicts, it's ultimately the people who understand the importance of taking care of themselves. Yeah. Who come out ahead of things. Right. And that's not to say that they don't still suffer tremendous loss because mm-hmm. at the end of the day like any kind of military conflict is going to end in tremendous loss on both sides but if you as a society have prioritized taking care of your people statistically you will be fine yeah and that's really i don't know if that's encouraging or or just terrifying it's a, a, it's bit.
1: a good point though sure it's a good point especially in our our industrialized militarized current situation where we mm-hmm. have governments buying billions of dollars of weaponry right. and not feeding their population. I think that's a, 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 I mean, I'm even just thinking about how like the the appalling thing that happens where infantry are much, much poorer, like tend to be poor people because mm-hmm. in the army your, your needs are met. Right. and out of the army your needs are not met and i think yeah. that's definitely something that's worth thinking about in the industrialized militarized police state bleak bleak <laughs> situation that we live in yeah um and i think that that like pretty much globally we live in at this point yeah. um
0: yeah that's it
1: it's good to remember that that a well-fed people are a strong people yeah <laughs> two things came to mind sure um through this one was remembering how uh, you were talked about the Revolutionary War and thinking about the way that colonizers did not really factor in North American winters a lot and so you have the stories of like George Washington at Valley Forge having to eat their horses Mm. because it was a longer colder winter than expected and they didn't have enough food to make it through the winter right Um, and they were at that point Uh, uh, pillaging from their own people to Mm -hmm. feed the army Um, and it's sort of I mean I went to school in the US it's really like kind of like one of the like bleak stories of the American Revolution which is otherwise really presented as like full-on glorious sure (laughs) Um, but the other thing I'm really thinking about that this book was written by someone who survived the concentration camps yeah and just thinking about you know what an example of of food being weaponized what sure. an example of starvation being weaponized yeah. and it's just really significant to me that 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 having survived one of the maybe most glaring examples of weaponized starvation in recent history mm-hmm. uh and then inspiring him to say you know let's see how this sure. goes back let's follow this thread yeah. um well, and i mean, I, I just really like, like want to know more about this guy now yeah for sure <laughs>
0: and i mean frankly like that's not even the only time that the jewish people have had bread weaponized against them you know like yeah. that's historically been a thing for for a very long time right bagels exist like <laughs> largely i think because of anti-semitism so like there was a a point in the middle ages where polish jews were not allowed to bake bread and so the bagel was created as a workaround where you could boil it and then toast it right (laughs) instead of having to specifically bake it and that created this this thing that now we eat all the time. Yeah. And, like, don't even necessarily think of as, like, not baked. Yeah. But it came out of this place of Christians saying Jews don't deserve bread because (laughs) bread is the body of Christ. Oh, gee, of course. And using that as a tool of oppression and then Jews saying, okay, well, there's got to be a way we can get around this. (laughs)
1: Listen, if you want to see where there's a genocide happening, look at who doesn't have enough to eat. Yep. Look where people have not enough food. I'm thinking yeah. right now of course of the northern populations primarily indigenous populations in Canada yeah. where their food prices are, are completely outrageous and you know it's also very hard to hunt in the traditional ways that people from that area provide sustenance. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, food sovereignty and if you see food sovereignty being stripped um, that's probably genocide. Yeah. So keep Look, your eyes open.
0: The, the reason that the Irish potato famine existed is because the English would not let the Irish have bread yep and they became reliant on potatoes exclusively and mono crops are bad
1: I mean we've talked about I feel like this has been coming up a lot in recent episodes but mm. I think it's really really important to think about when we have monocrop agriculture especially industrialized agriculture, who it benefits mm-hmm. and who it does not benefit. And I will tell you, it does not benefit farmers. It does not benefit consumers. It benefits the industrial, agricultural, military mm-hmm. system. Yep. Um, and they are all tied up in one big yucky knot.
0: Yep spoilers surprise guys (laughs) surprise this episode is actually the same as all our usual episodes and the moral of it is like
1: support your community garden
0: yeah exactly (laughs) Support your local
1: farmers
0: (laughs) war is bad capitalism's bad (laughs) everything's bad make your
1: own bread and uh if people don't have things it's because the government doesn't want them to yep Bet you
0: didn't think this was where we're going to. You thought this, this one. was
1: just a fun podcast, but we're actually radicalizing you one episode at a time.
0: Listen, if you went into this episode <laughs> thinking that this was going to be just a fun-filled romp of bread history facts, you should have figured out. You, <laughs> you should have figured out by the time I finished prefacing it and telling you that this writer lived through the Holocaust. You probably should have, maybe at that point, been like, "Oh, I bet there's going to be some kind of like, uh, you know." Some, yep. some kind of social message at the end it's, of this
1: it's just so hard not to talk about this also right now when like Canada has been on fire all summer Yep. and right now there are whole like significant cities that are evacuated yep. and we've been seeing video like all week of people on boats watching their homes burn Yep. and these fires come exactly like straight Line from colonialist greed and then monoculture, Mm -hmm. clear cutting, and then thinking you can just airdrop a bunch of saplings to restore the forest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if it's coming a lot up a lot, it's because I am pissed as hell about it right now and it's just it's so important to be aware of these things it's 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 not just important i mean it's important politically it's important spiritually Mm -hmm. and psychologically but it's also this appreciation of food it, when you can appreciate where food comes from, when you can appreciate what a healthy food system looks like, what a healthy um, agricultural environment looks like, you can get so much more joy yeah. out of the food you're eating yeah. and the way you access it and yeah. the way you <sighs> share it. <laughs> yeah.
0: And and the flip side of that is when you can appreciate and understand all of those things and, and see what a good and healthy and sustainable food system looks like, you can then see the red flags of the opposite of that, right?
1: Exactly.
0: And it's like they say, people who fail to learn history are doomed to repeat it, right? Yeah and so when we talk about the history of bread and and the interplay between the economy and the industrialization and the military we're doing that very intentionally right yeah. we do that very intentionally as a warning and as a reminder of how bad things can be how bad yeah. things are how things can be worse and and just of like how we need to be aware of these things mm-hmm. and conscious of them mm-hmm. On that note. <laughs>
1: <laughs> would you recommend this book?
0: I would recommend this book to people who are ready for a like very heady read. Yeah. I would not recommend this book to someone who wants something casual. Right. I would not recommend this book to myself at the time that I started reading it. Yeah. <laughs> but I am very glad that I powered through it okay. basically Uh, because it was very interesting it made me think a lot and uh, if you want to get your hands on a copy of it I will pop a link in the description of this episode to uh, some places where you can find it I will also make a little plug here for um, supporting your local bookstores you know we talk a lot about supporting local in terms of food but anything that you can do to support local businesses instead of say Amazon is uh, probably good to do so uh, you know look up this book Find the local place where you can get it. Call your local bookstore and ask them to order you a copy. They will have ways to do that 99% of the time. You can't, you can't buy a copy in a way that directly benefits the author anymore because, you know, he wrote this in like 1949, I think.
1: But <laughs> it, might, it might help his, you know, family benefit. Yeah. I don't know.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. F- find the way to buy this book that feels the best to you and uh, do it. It's 6000 years of bread. It's holy and unholy history by A.G. E. Jacob. So, on that note, thank you so much for listening to this episode of No Bad Food. Do you want to be part of the conversation? You can hit us up on the socials at no Bad Food Pod and individually at TeferBear and at Tonsalatni. If you like this episode and you want to help us make the show even better, you can head to Patreon.com slash Pod to donate. For as little as $1 a month, you'll be joined the ranks of fine folks like Chantal H., Gab, Thomas, Erica, Andrew, Chantal T., David, Mallory, Sarah, Nell, Carolann, Rachel, Aslam, and Anne. Patrons get access to all kinds of awesome perks, including the ability to request topics for episodes of the show and access to our new No Bad Food Recipe Club newsletter. So if that's exciting for you, you can head to patreon.com slash nobadfoodpod to make it happen.
1: We also have merch. You can hit the merch link in the description of this episode or any of our episodes to get all sorts of great stuff from our friends over at Podcavern. And of course, you can support us for free by leaving a rating and review on your podcatcher of choice and by sharing this episode with a friend. Our theme music is by Zach Ingalls, and our cover art is by David Flam. You can find links for both of them in the description of this episode.
0: Last but certainly not least, the show was produced by me, Tonza Zalatnai, and you, Tefer Jemian, and edited by me, Tonza as part of the Podcavern Network. You can find out about all the great shows on our network at www.podcavern.com. And actually, if you stick around through the end of our outro, you're going to hear a special little promo for uh, the newest show coming to our network this fall that Tefer's actually involved in so uh Keep an ear out for that.
1: Can I say a little thing yeah, about of course, it? of course. I'm so excited about this project um, and I've had to be quiet about it for such a long time. <laughs> it's called Oniric. It is uh, by Vincent Lazon who did the Moth Collection, if you're familiar with it. Uh, I don't want to say too much about it, um, only to say that Oniric means having to do with dreams and uh, that's quite a big part of the show. Um, I've been voice acting on it. It's been really fun to do something that's like uh, fiction and I'm so excited about it, so I really hope that you'll give it a listen and uh go on that journey with me. Yeah, it should be fun. Also, there's a character named after me. Just say it.
0: Yeah, that's it. That's, that's the fun th- that's the thought. When when Vincent hit, hit us up asking you to be part of it, uh, and I found out that the character was going to be named after you, I was like, Oh hell yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I love I love that kind of thing.
1: I like let's let's normalize naming people Teffer. Absolutely. <laughs> it's gender neutral, guys. There you go. I'm the first one of my name. It's also <laughs> a last name, but forget that. Whatever. Sure. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Forget about those last name Teffers Speaking of last things, here's our theme music by Zach Ingalls, and uh, after that you will hear the Oniric trailer. And we'll see you next week. You understand. It just takes a little time. No Bad Food is a proud member of the Podcavern Network. For more great shows like this one, head to podcavern.com.
1: This thing on? Yes. Oniric, oniric. Notes to Oniric, Day 1. By Tefer Troy, Doctoral Candidate, Alternative Narrative Traditions, Université de Montréal, October 12, 683. Oniric. Hello, Deirdura. I hope you're
0: well. I'm recording this now, because today's a big day. I'm meeting with a talking wolf after lunch. I'm a bit nervous about it.
1: Onayirik. A flame that rides the winds of worlds. A flame that seeks a single torch. The torch burns bright. The torch burns out. The flame remains and rides anew. Onayirik.
0: It's a dream quest. It's a grail quest. It's a fever dream
1: quest. Onirik. Just say hi.
0: Please.
1: Do it, do it, do it, do it, do oh, it. For fuck's sake. Hi, Deirdre. Hope you're well. You're well rid of this idiot. Onirik. Coming
0: fall 2023 in the pod cavern and wherever you get your podcasts.